0: You're listening to Criterion Channel Surfing, a podcast dedicated to the films of the Criterion Collection streaming video service, the Criterion Channel. I'm your host, Josh Hornbeck. Writer and co-host of Criterion Now, Jill Blake, joins me today to discuss noir on the Criterion Channel. Stay with us as we start Surfing the Criterion Channel. CriterionCast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com. My guest today is writer and co-host of Criterion Now, Jill Blake. Jill, thank you again for joining me on the show. Uh, This is going to be a lot of fun.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: What's been going on uh, for you, and uh, how has it been uh, jumping on with uh, Criterion now? There have been some great conversations lately. Uh, I've been really enjoying those. Yeah, um, I will
1: tell you that um, last year ended not so great professionally, um, and I think that's the case for a lot of people. You know, freelancing is tough in a good year, um, but last year, a lot of people took a hit on that because of the pandemic. And then I kind of just made a decision for, you know, mental health reasons, like, all right, I'm just not going to pursue any work right now. This was mm-hmm. at the start of this year, and like I just need to kind of refocus. And everything was kind of in chaos at the yeah. start of the year. Um, and I had kind of helped out a couple of uh, historians on some on some uh things on Frederick March that they were doing, uh, Carrie Beecham for the merrily we go to hell release that came out on criterion earlier this year. So I was actually on the phone with her as the Capitol was be, being uh, breached. So it's like, you know, one of those things, when they ask you where you were, you know, oh, I was on the phone with Carrie Beecham discussing pre-code. So I didn't think this year was going to go so great professionally. Cause I just wasn't in it mentally and, and I wasn't sending any pitches out. And then um, back in, I think maybe april um i was contacted to to participate in uh this patreon the classic film collective which is a a group of um women writers and songwriters and poets and artists all kind of in a classic film uh slant um although our Definition of classic film is very generous, um, pretty much anything up to the last 20 years. So we started that Patreon, I think it was in May, we kicked that off. And so that was kind of a nice little unexpected um, and kind of got the creative juices flowing for me a little bit. And then um, I had... Uh, guested on on Criterion now with Aaron. He had me on, and don't even ask me what I was talking about because I can't remember. <laughs> um, but we, you know, I've been on the show a few times, and then, you know, the episode was really well received. And it, it was like maybe a couple weeks later, he was like, you know, I've been thinking about this, and I think I would really love to have you as a co-host. And you know, just really thrilled uh, to. Uh, be a part of it and it kind of gives me an, I, I had kind Oh, I know what it was I, that episode. I talked about kind of rediscovering movies again. Cause I had stopped watching them
0: mm. and
1: um and so it's actually given me an excuse to set the set aside the time to, yeah. to watch movies, which is kind of a form of self care for me. Um, maybe it is for you too. Yeah. Um, it's hard for me. And especially when you, when you write about film for a living and you, you're, you're a researcher, you know, it becomes, you forget what you forget, what d- brought you to that in the first place. Right. Um, mm-hmm. That it was a love. <laughs> yeah. And so I kind of got burned out and I had some things that didn't go my way last year, big projects that didn't materialize. And so I was kind of just out of it. And so being on the show with Aaron has kind of reignited what I love about film, so that's been a, a a real positive for me in terms of personally and professionally and creatively. So that in in conjunction with the Classic Film Collective has the, they've been kind of you know, cosmically sent uh, mm. for me.
0: That's really fantastic, and I, I I love what you're you're talking about there that those 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 things that come into our lives and you know sometimes you know I know that when I podcast or or when I get so focused sometimes on needing to get a review up or getting getting something written for my website or something it it can feel sometimes like I'm not paying as much attention to the yeah. film itself
1: you're not um, engaging in yeah. a, in, a, in a
0: way that's
1: fulfilling maybe mm-hmm. um it mm-hmm. just seems a bit it, – it's easy to get into a rut, let's say that.
0: Mm-hmm. Anything cool. else you want to share uh, about uh, what you've been working on in the uh, recent recent days and recent months?
1: You know, I'm just starting to put feelers back out to uh, maybe pitch a few things here and there. Hopefully, we'll have uh, another – essay, booklet essay coming maybe next year. That's kind of been put on ice for now um, because of there's some uncertainty as to whether um, that project's going to even come to fruition. But that is on in kind of in a holding pa- pattern um and then we're just doing a big um we're starting a big subscriber push for the classic film collective and we're going to be having mm-hmm. some really cool things coming on that so i'm pretty pretty excited um, about the things we're doing with that uh, and the fact that we're still going really strong so that's kind of been uh, taking a bit of my focus uh, right now is coming up with new things that we can do for that uh, and for awesome. the, the patrons for next year. So,
0: yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, well, let's dig into uh, November's new uh, titles. This was a, a month with a lot of really just, again, you know, I'm always kind of uh, surprised by the things that they added, uh, the Robert Mitchum set and the, the noir sets. I mean, this was a a pretty pretty heavy month oh uh, totally the, stacked I, yeah i mean, just it it blew me away uh yeah uh so uh what uh what uh what were some of the things that really uh stood out to you or what was something that you really uh dug on uh during uh the month of november that really uh really caught your eye
1: well you mentioned the robert mitchum set when they announced that and i saw that <laughs> 31 movies holy shit i mean talk about a gift and this bundle and then and then having the introduction by imogen sarah smith who is so awesome uh it's just like the perfect package and the the range of films in this set is incredible it's everything from romance to noir to westerns to neo-noir in the 70s it shows the full range of this man's career and some of the titles that are on here are so hard to find yeah. um seeing Thunder Road here made me so happy I love mm. that movie so much home from the hill oh my God you know just just some great stuff and um oh Rachel and the stranger I've I've seen most of these um, and the only one that's in this list that's not available yet, is holiday affair, which won't be available till after the first of the year. But um, that's, that's another great film that's uh, where he's playing just the sweetest romantic lead and he's so (laughs) young and it's just a darling film. And then of course, just the Fox Noir uh, yeah. set it was really impressive. Again, with an Imogen Sarah Smith introduction. The the one I kind of picked out of this uh, is Crossfire from mm-hmm. 1947, directed by Edward Dimitric. And this is a film. So you know, it came out in 1947. And this, the main theme in this film, there, well, there's a murder and... The film kind of opens up with this Jewish man being beaten to death and they're um, they're trying to figure out who who uh, committed the murder. And so you have this theme of anti-Semitism in the film, which was very daring for the time. Uh, The same year, there was another film that came out that uh, addressed anti-Semitism, and that was Gentleman's Agreement. Now, when you watch Gentleman's, and Gentleman's Agreement actually won the Academy Award that year for Best Picture, and then Crossfire was nominated. Glory Graham and Robert Ryan were both nominated for Oscars. When you watch Crossfire today, or Gentleman's Agreement, especially Gentleman's Agreement, it doesn't age well, like a lot of message films um they were very ahead of the time for the time but um they don't necessarily uh, jive um with today crossfire um is definitely not a a message film in the way that gentleman's agreement is but um i think that maybe some audiences today may go i don't know this you're kind of you're not handling it this in a way that we would find acceptable today. But I do think watching it in that post-war period or watching it, thinking of being in that post-war period, this film was extremely edgy for the time. And I find that a lot of people have not seen it. So Mm -hmm. uh, this is definitely one to watch. Keep all of that in mind that you need to be present in 1947 And the performances are fantastic. The fact that you have Robert Young, you have three Roberts, okay? Robert Young, Robert Mitchum, Robert Ryan, right there, that's that sells it. And then you have, uh, like I said, Gloria Graham, and then Sam Levine, who's a great uh, character actor from the era. Um, anyways, I, I love this film. It's great. There is the original film, the... Um, or the original novel that this is based on, the uh, victim is gay, mm. and you know the code would not allow any mention of homosexuality in a film, um, and so they actually changed that theme to racism and anti-Semitism, which is still very edgy, but that was that was allowed with the code and and any kind of really any sexuality whatsoever (laughs) 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 so anyways um have you seen this movie
0: i don't think so um but this sounds fantastic Um, it's
1: it's really great
0: yeah yeah when they did the first colombian noir set uh i remember just kind of diving into each of those films and uh, i just feel like every time they release a new noir bundle there's so many gems Mm -hmm. in in the the work that they release um I'm well let's just be honest whenever they're releasing any of these kind of classic film bundles there are so many things that uh I know that as I'm still exploring classic Hollywood there's so many films that I just have not uh not explored yet and uh it's it's just uh there's a wealth of cinema there that uh i know i'll never have the time to catch up with all of them but this one sounds uh just amazing so i'm excited for this one
1: definitely put this one on your list um just because the first time i saw it i was completely shocked that they were able to make this film and so and and again you know like i said there i've seen people that have you know, seen reactions of people that have watched it recently essay, like the last five years, because it also came out on Blu-ray from um, Warner archive a while Mm -hmm. back. And so that kind of brought some new, new attention uh, to the film. And there was, there was a lot of criticism about how like, "Eh, I don't know, this doesn't, you know, it's a little preachy and I don't think they quite, you know, get it right. But, you know, again, you've gotta kind of view this in that in that time period. And I mean they're there when the fact that they acknowledge that this this murder happens because it was a it was a hate crime. That is yeah. just the the admission that anti Semitism is at the root of this yeah. is um is stunning for the time.
0: Yeah. So. well I I'm always I'm always really interested when films of the time are able to begin addressing these social issues uh, sure. however however clumsy the attempt uh, right. i find it fascinating i think about basil dearden's films that he was making oh, uh, yeah in london i think about like uh, victim Victim, I think about, yeah. uh, there are a couple of others that when Criterion released their mm-hmm. uh, their clip set of his yes. uh, Underground London, mm-hmm. um, you know, each of those is dealing with, you know, race, class, mm-hmm. uh, homosexuality in ways that aren't necessarily always, you know, the, the way that we would want a filmmaker to deal with it today. Sure. But... For the time, I'm I'm so impressed with how they're doing right. it. Right,
1: and you know, I sit there and I and you know, I think about you know, I have a hard time watching some of Sidney Poitier's work. I love him, absolutely love him, but it's hard to watch some of those films he was in in the '60s because my God, it's like <laughs> this isn't great for today. Yeah, You know, and there were problems with it then too. I mean, there were people that were calling out, okay, this is, this is, you know, you're kind of falling into some, you know, not so great tropes right here, Yeah. but Hollywood's never done a great job of handling that kind of stuff. And then it pats itself on the back. And, and, and the thing is, is that, and, and and maybe this is the problem and this is a whole other, you know, issue that I'm sure we don't need to be going down, but essentially Hollywood I can watch this movie from 1947. I can watch this movie from 1962 or whatever and go, wow. Okay. This is really ahead of its time. I can't believe they had this made, but they're still doing this shit in yeah. 2020. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so that, so, and that actually brings up a, a very interesting conversation to have about, okay, why aren't they doing a better job of this? And so yeah. anyways, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah no this one sounds really really great I'm very uh I'm very curious to see this and uh really excited to and that cast to check this out. I mean come on yeah. the three yeah. Roberts you can no. do no wrong there <laughs> that's great that's great well uh, I'm just going to do a quick mention this isn't going to be the film that I'm going to talk about but I'm going to do a quick uh mention to a short film uh Don't Go Telling Your Mama I caught this, uh, I'm I'm doing the International Documentary Association screening series right now. Um, we're getting, you know, a, a documentary every day. Got two more weeks of it. And uh, this is one that was um, featured as part of the, uh, I think it's the New York Times OpDoc shorts. Okay. And uh, really excited, this is on the channel now as well. This is one of the, this will probably end up being one of my favorite films, on my list of favorite films of the year. It is uh, a stunning blend of uh, great interviews about the black experience mm-hmm. mixed with uh, surreal imagery and um, a, a great use of music interview. It, uh, it's directed by Topaz Jones, who is a musician and uh, multimedia artist and it uh, takes uh, a look at the uh, what was uh, called the black ABCs
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, was which was devised in 1970 by two Chicago teachers it reimagines that it uh, plays with it it is funny it is energetic it is based on uh, an album that he created as well uh, it's just this this really um, engaging work that really drew me in. And uh, I think it's uh, one of the most fascinating formal experiments with the documentary form that, um, you know, whenever I see somebody playing with documentary, I'm always, I'm there. I'm really excited to see how that how that works and how people can play with that more and more. So um, yeah, I I think this is uh, really, really exciting, really fun. And if you have 35 minutes, it's uh, a great, a great use of that time. That so, sounds
1: awesome. I'm going yeah. to
0: check that out. It's very, very, very engaging. Uh, but the the film that really uh, that I really want to highlight for people and hope people will check out is Angels Wear White by Vivian Q. Um, it's a Chinese film. It's uh Noir Ten. I didn't intend for it to to all follow the noir theme, but I guess I am uh, <laughs> today. But this is a um, a really uh, haunting film about uh, sexual assault uh, that is at a Chinese uh, resort uh, seaside town. It's witnessed and uh, recorded by a young woman who is uh, in China illegally. Uh, she works at the hotel. She captures, you know, it's it's the assault is captured on security cameras and she, then she records it on her cell phone. And um, she is uh, being pressured by uh, people within kind of one of the local gangs to hand the cell phone over. Uh, she is also being pressured by a police inspector to share what she knows. And she is trying to figure out what to do? She's worried about being deported. Um, the this is based on real stories that happen in China quite often, where government officials, uh, teachers, um, will will assault um, young girls. And uh, this was uh, covered in uh, Nanfu Wang's documentary "Hooligan Sparrow," which left the channel last month. Uh, it's really harrowing. Uh, stuff that happens there, it gets covered up a lot by the government or they will slap one government official with uh, pretty severe crimes to say, this is, this, see we don't tolerate this but then it yeah. runs rampant across society. Um, so it's it's a pretty brave film. Um, it follows uh, the stories of the three women involved, the, the young girl who was assaulted, mm-hmm. this uh, immigrant and uh the police inspector who is trying to investigate the crime it's uh really uh angry it's powerful it at the seaside resort there is a giant statue of Marilyn Monroe in her mm-hmm. um famous uh seven year itch with the mm-hmm. um the dress yeah. uh, but all you see are her legs so again, we get all these images of objectified female bodies. The film is really, really angry about the ways that women are treated in in society. Yeah, it's a wow. it's a hard hard film to shake, but it is um, it's it's gorgeous. I saw this at the Seattle Film Festival, mm-hmm. uh, I think three or four five years ago, and uh, it's one that has stayed with me. And uh, I'm glad it's getting a little more prominence uh and uh, i'm glad criterion has brought it over i think this is uh this is a fantastic film that i think uh i hope more people check out wow okay it's a hard one it's a hard one yeah all right not one not one for um your casual casual i was gonna gonna
1: say this one may not be uh just uh hey let me pop on this yes Let's gather. Let's gather around the Christmas tree family yeah. and watch this. No, that that no. sounds um, incredible. Yeah.
0: Well, as I always like to say, uh, Criterion giveth and Criterion taketh <laughs> away. Taketh
1: away. <laughs> and
0: uh, we we did lose. Uh, this was a hard one. I we losing a lot this month, and yeah. uh, it's a it's a hard one. Um, so many of those New York stories. Yeah. Uh, Films that are not available anywhere, uh the the Curtis Harrington films. I'm a big fan of Aki Karasmaki. His films, uh some of the ones that are harder to find are leaving. There's just a there's a lot that are uh leaving. Jill, what's what's one film uh that you would recommend people seek out even after it has uh left now?
1: Yeah, so this was kind of hard for me to pick because Like you said, like this is this is an incredible list, but I did go with something out of that New York uh, stories bundle, which, my God, I mean, just brilliantly programmed. And it's um, The Clock uh, from Mm. 1945, uh, directed by Vincent Minnelli. And this film is okay. Let me just say that. A lot of people either love Judy Garland or hate Judy Garland, I find. (laughs) Okay. And it also kind of goes along with whether people like musicals or not. Right. Mm -hmm. Judy also, I think, gets total disrespect in that people don't take her seriously as an actress. Mm -hmm. And I say to those people, you need to watch The Clock. Because she, number one, does not sing in this film it is not a musical and number two this film shows she was so talented but this this film shows her dramatic range as an actress and i and i think was really the first time she was maybe full taken fully seriously as as an actress and and this was right before she and Manelli were married. Uh, this was released actually the same year they were married, I believe, but filmed before. And Manelli knew how to shoot her. She's beautiful. She she carried every film she was in. She stole every scene she was in. Mm-hmm. But this is just a wholly different performance. And he knew how to bring the best out in her. He also knew how to bring out the worst. But <laughs> he, you know, because it was such a volatile relationship uh, between the two of them. But he he did know how to bring that. I think he really was a part of what about of her growth as an actor uh, yeah. and I hate to say, well, it's because of Manelli that Judy, you know no, Judy had the talent, and mm-hmm. she needed no one to bestow that talent upon her. She was born with it. She was a natural. But I think he saw something in her that other directors did not. and that's why some of her best work was, was working, working with him. And this also has Robert Walker, who most people know from strangers on a train. And he, you know, Robert Walker really got his start being, you know, playing these like super kind of dorky, cute, young, romantic parts for MGM. And, you know, he was, uh, you know, kind of played the, a boy next door type. And then he had total turmoil in his personal life. Uh, he was married to actress Jennifer Jones, who had an affair with Selznick. And uh, <laughs> it was not great. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of sent, uh, sent him on a path of destruction, and he died mm. at a very early age uh, after he made Strangers on a Train. But um, he is in this, and he's fantastic. This film is just so romantic, but it's not cheesy, um, so don't let that scare you off if, if you're not into that. And the whole premise of this film is that – Robert Walker's character is a is a uh, soldier he's on leave Uh, I think it's like 36 hours 48 hour leave and he meets this young beautiful woman played by Judy uh, in Penn Station and it's kind of this they have this meet cute and they go through all these things and they want to get married before he has to leave And uh, they have to go, they're racing, literally racing the clock before he has to uh, depart. So it's just a very sweet kind of wartime romance. Definitely should check it out. I think it is, it was released on uh, Warner Archive years ago, but I'm not sure if it's still in print or not. But you can probably get a used copy if it's not, if it's not still in print
0: yeah this is one that you know my uh my wife and i watched i think we watched it in the the waning days of filmstruck and oh, yeah. it blew me away because i think i i was one of those people that had a had all these preconceived ideas about who judy garland was yeah and uh, it was absolutely riveting it moved me deeply uh because it's it's like you said it isn't cheesy it isn't sappy or saccharine it is just exquisite on every turn this is a to me a flawless film absolutely um, it is delightful from beginning to end and it knows how to to start off on this really light kind of almost effervescent note at times and then it it lets the the real genuine emotion of the situation sink in and uh it never it never gives itself over to uh just pure sentimentality and judy garland right. is to me a revelation in this and as i started watching some of the musicals uh that she was in beyond wizard of oz and beyond some of the things that i think i had seen her in earlier uh, i was just absolutely stunned by what a generous and incredible performer she yeah, is. so she, i am now a wholehearted fan yeah.
1: that's the thing about judy and you know i i love i adore her and there are films of hers that i i don't like i think that's true for you know any actor that you mm-hmm. that you like you can't you can't like everything they're in but it is you can never say that she didn't work her ass off. Yeah. I mean, she brought it, even when she was at her lowest points, and there were many of them, she, I mean, I think about, uh, it was a couple years after this, she was, uh, she filmed The Pirate that Minnelli also directed and she was in that with Gene Kelly and she and Gene were very good friends and they were in three films together. And during that time, Judy was really sick. And if you watch the film, she is very thin, very frail mm-hmm. looking. And she had a hard time. There were a lot of missed days because she was so sick. But Gene Kelly said, you know, w- but when she dragged herself to the set she was so sick she was nothing but professional she put in every ounce of herself into everything she did Mm -hmm. and so I think you know over the years there's been this like reputation that you know she was a drug addict and she was lazy and this you know and yes she had addictions yes she had issues there were mental health aspects but this woman had a hellacious upbringing, yeah, had a hellacious life. and every performance I see her in is like this triumphant survival that's just preserved for us, right yeah, and we see that and and in this film, and there's a vulnerability to her too it's just it's so precious and it's such a rare performance in a in a lifetime of fantastic performances she gave us but it's it's such a unique performance yeah. nothing yeah. quite like it i'm so glad that you have seen this one and that it moved you and i think it's a wonderful you know maybe it's unrealistic you know it's definitely it's it's definitely a movie you know mm-hmm. i don't i mm-hmm. don't know how many people were rushing to get you know meeting and rushing to get married in 48 hours but yeah I think it is though a a neat little snap snapshot into maybe what it felt like, the sense of urgency for some people, maybe, knowing that the the men that they loved who were yeah. going away may never come back. And this is pre FaceTime and Skype and email and you may not get a letter for months. You don't know where yeah. they're wh- where they are. And so I do think it does give us an idea of what that sense of urgency to get whatever done that needs to be done before before they go off to war.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's uh, fantastic. Yeah, uh, and uh, for anyone who doesn't isn't able to track down a physical copy of the clock, uh, is also available on most of the video on demand platforms as well. Oh, so great if you want to check that out. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, for, uh, for where to find that as well. So, awesome. yeah, my recommendation for the stuff that is leaving is uh, a film that was out a few years ago, directed by Valeska Griesbach, and it's a Western. This is one of the ones that I think, uh, it made, uh, my honorable mentions, uh, for the year. It is a Bulgarian film. It is, a completely captivating, mysterious, engaging film. It's the story of uh, a German construction worker who has been hired to build a hydroelectric plant in a remote uh, Bulgarian village uh, near a, uh, the border with Greece and uh, they have interrupted the water supply for the village and as they're working they're waiting for a a gravel shipment that has not arrived and so again water has uh, water has been shut off Uh, the town is in need of the water Uh, tensions begin to build between the villagers and the, the the construction workers and it's this Really uh, incredible uh, slow building tension. There are these these explorations, I think, of the the colonial mindset between Western and Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it it plays with our own expectations of what we we expect a film like this to 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 become. Um, we we expect certain things out of a story like this, and even the name Western uh, mm-hmm. brings with it certain uh, expectations, and it it constantly uh, challenges those expectations. Yeah. Uh, the The German uh, construction worker that we follow is uh, a quiet man who's even at odds with. The, the rest of the construction workers. Uh, he begins to form bonds with the villagers and he begins to form friendships uh, with them. And the, there becomes more and more resentment that builds. Uh, I think that uh, one of the, the major things that begins to, to be explored here is this, the difficulty of communicating with each other, uh, the difficulty of seeing the humanity in, in those who are different than yourself. I just, I think this is a beautiful, uh, heartbreaking, uh, slow burn of a film that, uh, just reminds me of, of how I, uh, one of the things that I go to international cinema for a lot of the time, those, mm-hmm. those, those quiet reflections on human nature, uh, that, that you don't get as often in, uh, modern American cinema. So, yeah.
1: the, so I mean, I'm like getting some great titles to check out because, uh, you know, I've talked about this a lot, too, with Aaron on Criterion Now is, you know, I do have some glaring blind spots when it comes to international cinema. Mm-hmm. And so uh it's good to get And it. And it's, you know, I think and the same would go for people that go, well, I don't I don't know where to start on, you know, pick any era of classic Hollywood. And it, it always it seems daunting. Like, where do you <laughs> where do you yeah. start and so yeah it's good to have some recommendations to kind of guide a little bit because yeah. it can be it can be very overwhelming so this sounds fascinating
0: yeah western is also uh because it's it's no longer on the channel it is also available on video on demand uh platforms so uh you can find it uh on most of those places uh as well i'll put a link in the show notes there well Jill we're uh, we're going to be talking about noir uh, uh on the channel and uh, I am really curious you know you've you've talked a little bit about noir already and you know, as I've been listening to you on Criterion now, and you know, you've had some great conversations with Imogen Sarah Smith, uh, and you and Aaron had some great conversations with uh, his with, former class, with his yeah. uh, classmate with on Craig, the, yeah, Craig, yeah, on the on what what is noir, uh, and and I've loved how you talk about kind of. Uh, rejecting some of the rigid definitions of noir. Yeah, but I'm curious. What what does noir mean to you? And and what are the things that you go looking for when you uh, look for noir?
1: Uh, depravity. <laughs> 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 um, God, the seedier the better. Mm-hmm. You know, like. But then I always love. I love a guy who is like, just ca- like a good guy, you know, that Mm -hmm. gets the honey trap, just lures him in to doing shit that he would never do. Otherwise it's like the, that woman, that femme fatale is, is just a magnet and it will pull, she will pull any man to his doom. You know, I love, I love, I love seeing that it's the, and it's tragic. You know, you know, earlier I was, you know, I was talking about drive a crooked road and I am an unabashed Mickey Rooney fan, just a hundred percent. And I love him and pretty much everything his personal, except for like breakfast at Tiffany's, my God. But, um, <laughs> you know, and his personal life was a mess. I'm not advocating for that, but he was a terrific actor and that's a performance where God, he's just, you just want to like cradle him in your arms He is so innocent and kind and just you feel he's pitiful. And then he just, he is brought down, you know, and you still feel for him. So I, I do love the, having the, the protagonist antagonist kind of combo there where you're, and you're, you're rooting for them, you know? Um, And then like I said, you the seedier the better. And I and I love to see what directors how they were able to slide in some of the things they were able to get in because of the code. And I love that feeling of especially in what we consider, you know, peak noir, which is during the um Early to mid-World War II, but really it gets going at the end of World War II. Just seeing these guys who, you know, were out of the service and they are... We we went from, you know, uh, rah-rah, yay America, woo, let's get Hitler. And then we just jump right into despair and gloom and it is pessimistic. So I love that... That vibe coming. The '40s are my favorite era, Mm -hmm. just for that that pivot. I love war films, and then and then that pivot into, shit's bleak. You know that whole period is so fascinating to me. So that's kind of what I you know all I look for all of that. And like I said, you had mentioned earlier, I have a very broad definition of noir, as I think some of the I think the best experts do as well. You know, I think that I would, uh, the things that most people would not consider noir, I would go, I don't know, it's got some elements, you know, so mm-hmm, I'm pretty, mm-hmm. I'm pretty, um, pretty loosey goosey on that, you know, if it feel if it feels right. And, and I go, yeah, all right, that feels noirish to me. All right, slap it on there. It works.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know, I've I've really loved, you know, again, what what, in your conversation with Imogen Sarah Smith, just the the ways you discussed, uh, you know, the Japanese noir and the way that kind of the different different eras, different genres, yeah. different um, you know, neo-noir, uh the ways we're still exploring some of those those themes. Yeah. Uh, and the ways that there are so, these these genres that are so that that dovetail so into noir and explore right. some of those those themes, those the fatalism and the a lot of the same the same elements in some really interesting ways yeah, yeah
1: and you have I mean I think too to kind of you know and and Imogen really she I learned so much from that conversation with her yeah. because she is such an expert in not just noir but international noir and if you're talking about the noir that Hollywood was putting out in the in that period we do think of from, mm-hmm. you know, the mid 40s to, you know, let's say 50, 58, 59, you know, knowing, you know, having kind of a, for lack of a better word, I'd say like a literacy of pre-code gangster films, that's kind of a good, you want to kind of have a little bit of a knowledge of that. Because those films that were being made in the early 30s, a lot of times, uh, and even the gangster films getting into the mid to late 30s, those films a lot of times featured the, the characters were you know forgotten men. They they served in World War One. And then they come back, and then there's nothing for them. And so, what do they do? They turn to a life of crime. And so, you see that I, I, one film that I think about is a uh, Roaring Twenties, uh, nineteen thirty nine, I believe. And that's got uh, Cagney and and Bogie. And you know, they served in World War One together, and then they and then they become mobsters. You know, mm-hmm. and you see this progression where they were you know, upstanding law abiding and they were, you know, comrades together in the war serving in the trenches and then they come back and they're shit on and we have the the depression and what do they do? They're bootlegging. They're doing this, they're doing that. And so you have that. And then when you get into, get into that wartime, having an understanding of what was going on during world war two, you know, what were the attitudes, what, you know, what What were the politics at the time? And then you get into Red Scare shit, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: you, knowing all of that and then getting into this period of noir and the stuff that was like the, the A-list noir all the way down to Poverty Row stuff, right? And And having that knowledge really enriches the experience. So anybody that, you know, has watched a lot of noir but maybe hasn't, checked out uh you know wartime films or you know th- they know they're mob films from the 30s but maybe haven't watched any some of the films that address uh what was going on with the world war one veterans you know there's definitely some films that they can watch to kind of give them a more complete basically to get a fuller picture of what these filmmakers were trying yeah to
0: say yeah yeah no i think that's 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 fantastic. Yeah. I'm curious, how did you first start to kind of get into noir? What was your your entry point? The entry.
1: In? Yeah. Mm.
0: Or was it something that you always... That, that feels like it's always been a part of your, your film uh, you diet? Know,
1: I don't know. I don't know if I could tell you the first film. Because I always... I say I always, but (laughs) there's been kind of this, you know what? I think, I think it's Looney Tunes. Mm. I think my early, there was always this, I understood what mobsters were, which again, this isn't noir, but it, but it plays into that. It's kind of like proto-noir. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I knew about mobsters. And I think I knew about that from some of the Bugs Bunny cartoons. You know, mm-hmm. uh like the Ant Hill Gang kind of stuff. And 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 so I kind of knew these car- caricatures that were being portrayed in these these cartoon shorts that were that I didn't know who Edward G. Robinson was. Yeah. You know, when I was 4 years old. But you see these caricatures and yeah. so you kind of know that oh, well this is a this is a thing. And so I had this kind of language that was laid out for me that, okay, these are the types of characters that are playing in these movies. And then in terms of seeing noir and knowing that it was noir, it was, it was probably, probably double indemnity maybe, Mm. or maybe, um, yeah, probably double indemnity. Yeah. Would be a, would be like, all right, we're going to watch a noir now. Mm-hmm. And here's mm-hmm. what that is. And here, and, and here's all the hallmarks of a noir, you know, let's watch it. And and that was probably college, but I had definitely seen, I mean, there's a movie I'll talk about in a little bit that, you know, I saw when it came out, but I didn't know it was neo-noir. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. know what that yeah. was. Yeah. So, yeah. but I, yeah, I would definitely say indemnity or, or maybe, um, I can't even, it had to have been indemnity. That's just seems like the, the main one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, my, my entry points into, you know, classic film were you know, Hitchcock and, uh, you know, kind of beginning that just post-college and, you know, having gotten into, you know. Kane a little bit and and beginning to seek out more Orson Welles stuff. And so The Third Man, which I think has some of those noir elements in it. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, kind of really gravitating towards The Third Man and then looking at Touch of Evil. And, you know, so some of those, those... I think really accessible points. And then I think yeah. double indemnity was one of those ones because I was watching a lot of Billy Wilder and, um, as you do.
1: I mean, that's he, he's yeah. one of the, one of the main ones, you yeah. know, that she, that is so accessible, you know, yeah. I think.
0: Yeah. And I think, and I think then, you know, things like, you know, uh, Eddie Muller's noir city and seeing some of that, right. even I not able to actually get to noir city, seeing the listings of stuff that he's showing yeah. and seeing how expansive he is mm-hmm. especially when he's looking at international noir and as he's looking at what kind of he's considering there i know that, that has really helped me kind of go yeah. oh oh this this film here uh, let me let me check this out and let me yeah let me check this film out here and let me let me think about different ways of appreciating noir, you know, and, and appreciating, even if this isn't strictly noir, here are the hall, here's some of the hallmarks, you know, here's the, the, the innocent brought into a seedy world, or here, here are these different things that, that play with the, the tropes. Uh, Right. And that's been really, really fun for me as I've been kind of drawn into the, a genre that has really help solidify my love of classic cinema.
1: Well, I will tell you, I mean, there's a lot of people doing the work out there that are, that are, you know, you know, my friend Mariah Gates who created November, you know, Imogen who is, who is front facing on criterion. And, but I have to say that, you know, Eddie, I mean, this is like a lifelong passion of his. Mm -hmm. And I think he has done an incredible, incredible job of, bridging then and now and getting you know getting people interested and in, you know he cleverly uses those main films like Double Indemnity or Sunset yeah. Boulevard or whatever and then he he goes okay if you like this here's this yeah. and he's done you know and with Film Noir Foundation and you know my good friend Alan Rohde they who's with the Film Noir Foundation they are restoring these these films that have not been seen forever and and putting you know the focus on on these kind of great B films that have been dismissed because they were B films you know mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. these are some some of those are the the greatest yeah noir i mean I, I love all those phil carlson movies my god they're they're so and they were made for a you know a buck and yeah. they are fantastic and i i do and i don't know how what you think about this but i've always felt at least now that i think that noir is probably the most accessible genre out of classic film i think yeah. anybody could get into it there's yeah. something there for everyone and yeah. people that are have like some kind of like preconceived Notion and an aversion to black and white, you could hook them with, with take, you know, throw a dart, you'll find a movie they'll love, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I love, it. I love how broad of a genre it is. And I love it so much.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, then let's, let's get into uh, recommendations that are yeah. on the channel. Uh, what, what would you like to recommend that is uh, sitting on the channel?
1: So, okay, this is probably not up there in terms of this would this would definitely be noir or not. And I say it's noir. And that is William Wyler's The Desperate Hours. This is 1955 starring Humphrey Bogart, Frederick March. And this uh, was actually a play by Joseph Hayes. That uh, apparently was inspired by a true event. And basically, it's a home invasion gone terribly awry, and this family, Midwestern family, is held hostage by these two criminals. So you have this kind of battle between Frederick March, who is the patriarch of this family. And Humphrey Bogart, who is the kind of the leader of this, um, there's three escaped convicts, and he's kind of the leader of these convicts. So they're it's a home invasion, but also they're hiding out because they're they're uh, they've escaped. This movie is, I have to say, Bogie's too old for the role. <laughs> Which was kind of the case for a lot of the films he made in the '50s. Um, But God, I love him, so Mm. I'll overlook that. (laughs) Um, Because I love him in Sabrina. You know, he's so old, and it's like I don't know if Audrey would pick you over William Holden. But man, (laughs) Bogie, you are so charming. So yeah, he's too old for this, but whatever. I don't care. He's fantastic. And seeing, you know, and everybody knows that I love Frederick March. And Mm -hmm. so seeing, you know, him face off with March where, you know, March is deaf. I mean, Bogey exuded masculinity in a way that (laughs) is like superhuman. Okay. And Mm -hmm. it was just so funny because it's like he redefined what masculinity was. Mm -hmm. And because he's just this little short guy. Right. Uh, With a hairpiece. Mm hmm and uh but he just has this presence about him and so seeing kind of and then you see frederick march is you know he's wearing a cardigan you know and <laughs> he's not very tough you know yeah. and you see these two guys that are they're that facing off and they're fighting for two different things it's a fascinating fascinating film and of course william wyler who is my favorite director of all time mm. who I don't think ever made the same movie twice Yeah, Um, a completely varied and and interesting uh, career. So that that's my pick. I love it.
0: Yeah, that sounds really, really (laughs) riveting. Uh, And I love those two handers almost, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, because it sounds like it's it's very much Bogart versus March, you know. It is. And there's
1: some really great um Arthur Kennedy's in it as well. He's mm-hmm. a great actor. And then if I'm not mistaken, a very young Gig Young mm. is in it, which you know, he's a fascinating individual and very tragic. You know, everybody can read upon him, but yeah, I, I believe he's in it as well. And so it and this is this is kind of a hard one to find. So it's. I'm really um, glad that that this one's on the channel right now. Yeah,
0: that's great. Yeah, this is this is uh, moving toward the top of my list to to catch because this is this uh, just sounds fantastic. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Mine is uh, what I'll call noir adjacent. It's <laughs> it's one of those that I think is. Uh, it has a lot of the hallmarks of noir. It's one of those those films that I think has evolved out of noir. It's yeah. uh, As I was doing my research on it, it is uh, part of the kinky genre, which is a <laughs> Spanish film genre that was um, really popular in the 70s and 80s that were about delinquents and drugs and love and often starred non uh, non-traditional actors. Okay. and uh, this is directed by carlos saura uh who is known to a lot of people who follow criterion for uh, his flamenco trilogy mm-hmm. uh so he did a, and he's was he was still doing dance films up into like the 2000s so he was doing a lot of uh, work with with dance with um again non professional actors and uh, when i saw it i thought you this doesn't Feel like a Carlos Saura film. This doesn't feel the same. But as I as I pondered it, you know, we as we were talking about in the Patreon pre-show, this this idea of slowing down and really thinking and and chewing on the work rather right. than just consuming it like we're trained to right now. But thinking about it in the context of his documentary work, it it does really feel all of one piece that uh, he's interested in. Even in his dance films and the the narratives that he tells in his dance films, there's a fatalism. There's, there are these these noirish tinges to mm-hmm. the 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 tragedy and to the fatalism and to the 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 stories that he tells in those as well. Um, there's a, a doomed romance uh, to them all. This is the story of um, Angela, and she's a a waitress at a cafe who becomes enamored with Uh, some local delinquents. Uh, She doesn't know their local delinquents at the beginning, but she becomes drawn into their world and uh, becomes a member of the gang and starts going on robberies with them and eventually kills someone and puts this little gang on the radar of the police and sends this gang kind of spiraling towards its doom.
1: Love it. You're selling yeah, it for yeah. me, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, and and again, I think most of these performers are are kids that were not not professional actors. So yeah. you know, he's working with people who, like in the Italian neo-realist tradition, were people that were plucked off the street. Yeah, and uh, there's something that he gets. He gets some just really, really incredible performances from them as well. I think that there is this melancholy over it too, that I think you get in a lot of noir. I think uh, to me, you know, as, as much as I, I love the suspense in noir, I also love that, that sense of there's a sadness that I get from a lot of noir as well. I think of oh, Drive yeah. a, Cro- a crooked road, you know, as you were talking about that, uh, I always feel oh, so God, sad yeah. for the in And that, clo- right? that
1: closing shot, you know, yeah. like, I don't want to give anything away, but like, it's like, uh, you know, it, I yeah, don't, yeah I yeah. mean, that's, you feel you, you get wrapped up into,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you feel for them, even though they're yeah. doing terrible things, you yeah. know?
0: Yeah. And uh, this film, you know, it, it opens with this kind of, this harmless joyride. Yeah. You know, she goes on it, she goes with them and they steal a car and you think it's a, you know, for the most part, a, a joyride and it ends in violence it ends in in tragedy and yeah. i feel like that to me it just it it exemplifies so much about that what we see in noir in neo noir in in so many of these these stories he never hammers home the the sociological themes but you get the sense that there are no options for these kids right that there's nothing else available to them except for crime and I think that it's a it's an incredible um work of empathy that that we're allowed to to care about these kids who are doing violence um yeah. and yet it doesn't justify the violence at the same time right, right. Uh, so yeah i just i think that uh it's a mm-hmm. it's a really incredible work that Ah, uh, this is on Criterion's. This is part of their permanent collection, so this mm-hmm. is one that will be there. But um, uh, you know, I think these are films that that often get overlooked because are highlighted very often.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, you made a you made an important point about you know it doesn't you understand why they're driven to it, it doesn't mm-hmm. condone you know not condoning what the character is doing, but you understand yeah. and and that i think ties into what i was saying about understanding the what was going on at the time that these films were made and and or or understanding the setting that these films are in and understanding the limited options right mm-hmm. or understanding the the attitude that maybe this character is feeling because they feel you know forgotten or they feel like they've the system has they've fallen through the cracks somehow right yeah. and then they're presented with an opportunity
0: yeah
1: that they wouldn't be presented with otherwise and yeah. so okay well you know i've been screwed over so yeah i'm going to do this and yeah. it may be otherwise they wouldn't but what what choice do they have and so mm-hmm. and that's not always the case i mean sometimes people are just vile and <laughs> sociopaths and and mm-hmm. they're doing it for the for the thrill yeah. of of doing it but in so many of these, you know, films noir, we're seeing we're seeing people that are pushed to the limit. Yeah. And they really feel or maybe they the fact is they either feel they have no choice or they have no choice. Yeah. And it's oftentimes tragic, very yeah. tragic. Yeah. So I yeah. I love seeing that drawn to something that is um, you know, 1981 is not that, you know, it's 40 years ago but more mo- <laughs> but more modern yeah. than than say you know you know crossfire from 1947 mm-hmm. so it's it's interesting to still see those threads that are mm-hmm. you know, even popping up in into films today so yeah
0: well we're about to get into stuff that's uh even more recent <laughs> than that yeah. uh you know those are those are our recommendations for what's on the channel but uh i also like to to give a little uh a little nod towards things on other streaming services and jill what do you have for us uh, on another streaming service
1: yeah so i have a newer film that was made 30 years ago um <laughs> and you know god i never thought i would i would see the day that i would plug something on hbo max given I know. The, the, <laughs> but i think but you know i've i've you know i'm not as angry as i as i was but <laughs> But this is um, a fantastic neo-noir directed by Kenneth Brenna, which is dead again. And let me tell you, I'm going to be 42 tomorrow. And Mm -hmm. so I was very much a teen when this came out. And this was a, this was an event. Yeah. And it was an event because Emma... Thompson and uh, Kenneth Brona were were together and they Mm -hmm. were the Ben and Jen or the, you know, name any A-list couple. They were it. And I was obsessed with them as most teen girls were. And, uh, you know, they had done much ado about nothing. And Mm -hmm. it was just very much Kenneth and Emma, Emma and Kenneth and yes. this film came out and I, and my friend and I were not old enough to see it because it was rated R. And so we didn't get to see it in the theater, but the weekend it came out on VHS, we had her older brother, who's probably eight or nine years older drive us in his classic Mustang convertible Mm -hmm. to uh, this little podunk uh, video store and we rented Dead Again. Mm -hmm. And we watched it together. We had a sleepover. And my God, this film is amazing. I really don't want to give anything away. So I'm trying to figure out how I want to there's just a like there's amnesia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's uh, <laughs> there's um some scissors. Is it yep. scissors? Yeah, scissors. Yep, scissors,
0: yep. Yep.
1: There's um hypnotism, you know, Nazis, just uh, you know, there's dual identity. Am I forgetting anything?
0: Uh Andy Garcia.
1: <laughs> yeah. Andy uh, Garcia. Derek
0: jacoby
1: Derek jacoby robin williams gives a fantastic performance yeah
0: Yeah.
1: i just i i I don't want to say anything about it because i find that a lot of people have not seen it Mm -hmm. um so trust me do not think of 2021 kenneth branagh do not think of thor or Murder on the Orient Express, Disney fied, obsessed with putting in like 74 Dutch angles in one scene. <laughs> don't, don't think about that, Kenneth. Think about like peak Kenneth, Emma, early 90s. Yeah. And I just trust me, this movie is phenomenal.
0: Yeah. Kenneth Branagh was the first director that I really followed as a director. Yeah. Um, I, I was yeah. a theater kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah, I was too. So. <laughs> so I, I actually, you know, that was, that was my first experience, my first experience directing, uh, in high school. Cause I think mm-hmm. we're, we're just about the same age. So I think, uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm 44. So mm-hmm. we were in you high know. school, around the same time. Yeah, you know, I, uh, the, the I saw whole much to do about at the time. nothing. I directed a production of much to do about nothing in high school because yep. uh, I just, you know, I I had to to copy and learn how yep. to do that, uh, and you know, to me, you know, it was it was one of those things that I. I was just riveted by everything that he was doing at that point and dead again, it blew me away. Uh, So I, you know, I had VHS tapes of, you know, Henry V and Peter's Friends and Dead Again and you know, Much Ado About Nothing. And, you know, in college, I, you know, saw the the four-hour Hamlet four times yes. in the theater, you know. Yes. So, it, you know, to me, it was, it was one of those things that was just magic. Uh, yeah, and
1: film. the 90s were so weird for many reasons. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to explain to... My friends and my movie people who were, you know, younger, they, they were teens in the early 2000s. And so they, they were alive, but they weren't really tapped in. Mm -hmm. And I've tried to explain, like, you don't understand. We were like people, like the general public was going totally batshit nuts over Shakespeare. Like this is not, (laughs) it was a, it was this was just a cultural event Yeah, to, to see, you know, Kenneth's new movie. I mean, mm-hmm. and the whole, it was just such an interesting time and he was doing some great, he's a total pompous ass, yeah, but he was yeah. doing some great stuff. It was yeah. just such a weird, wonderful time for mm-hmm. movies. And, And I think it kind of gets lost in those kind of, like, cheesy, you -hmm. know, Sandler comedies and stuff, which I also love. But, like, (laughs) you know, you think about all of that stuff, but really there was some, like, great movies made for adults.
0: Yeah. You know, that
1: also appealed to teenage me. So, Mm -hmm. like, it was Mm -hmm. – and I feel like we we haven't really gone back to that. It was just – such an interesting time and this yeah. is one of those movies that's very a mo- a story made for adults yep. you know and yep. but then at the same time people were going to see it and it's just a weird fucking movie
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> you yeah. Know, I, the general public was watching you know
0: when i saw this on your show notes i i squealed with glee a little <laughs> bit so <laughs> so i'm so
1: thrilled when i saw that pop up on hbo max like a little more of that hatred that i hold for them like left a little bit i was like okay you know between this and under the volcano you guys you know i'll i'll forgive you for today yeah Yeah. um and this movie did get a blu-ray release off of the imprint label out of australia uh, but that's the only one i'm aware of i don't think it's on anything else so anyways
0: no, that's great. I'm going to go as I was kind of scrolling through things that I've seen over the last you know, bit to try to think of some, uh, uh outside the box noir, the one that, that stood out to me, I am going to give a special mention to a cop movie on Netflix. This one is uh, a fantastic documentary that, uh, examines policing in Mexico and, uh, looks at the corruption, uh, it uses reenactments in some really interesting ways. And then it begins to explore the ethics of its own construction Mm -hmm. and begins to interview the actors about portraying police officers and questions, should we even be making a documentary about police officers when there's so much corruption in the police force? And uh, I think it's a fantastic film that I think, again, when we're looking at ideas of, of corruption and noir and other things, I think that uh, a cop movie could be a really interesting one to look at. But uh, the one I really wanna talk about is The Mole Agent, which is a documentary by Mateo Verde on Hulu. It's a, a Chilean film. This is uh, not as dark, not as uh, twisted as uh, most of the the noir that we've been talking about today. Again, this is, you know, I would say noir adjacent, but uh, this is maybe one of the most uh, delightful films I've seen in the last couple of years. Uh, it's about a private investigator who hires an elderly man to go undercover in a nursing home in Chile uh, oh because my God, wow. Is, because the family is worried that ah their mother is being abused uh-huh. at the um el- at the the care home. Mm-hmm. So this this old man has glasses that are uh, recording devices Oh my God. he has you know special cameras he has all of these things to try to um, take pictures and uh, he's supposed to be writing in his journal he has a cell phone that he's been given but he's never used a cell phone before um, he's he's supposed to be doing all of these things to be a spy to be a mole agent in Mm -hmm. this uh, retirement community. And so it's really funny, but it's also tinged with that melancholy that we were talking Mm -hmm. about earlier, that Mm -hmm. there is so much sadness about the ways that countries treat their elderly. Right. uh, As we see them uh, abandoning um these older individuals uh we see you know he's he's the one of the handsomer older men uh, there aren't very many older men in these retirement <laughs> communities right. and so you know there are all of these women kind of threatening to derail his mission uh yeah. trying to proposition him for romance uh, <laughs> uh, and so you 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 have these you know again the the film is very consciously trying to echo noir at times sure. so you'll you'll have these little recreations where he's writing his thoughts and there are these uh vertical blinds shining down lights to give it Love noir it. touches um yeah. it you know again it's it's very light but it it it's very self-consciously referencing that uh, again he's chatted up by all the women um uh, but i think that it it this, this man, Sergio, who I think is just this incredibly humane and empathetic old man, uh, he becomes a window for us into a world that we rarely see. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that when I think about noir too, I think that a lot of times the, the detective or uh, our protagonist, whoever it is, they often become a window into a seedier world yeah. or into a different world. And I think that uh, while it's a playful film, I think that the genius of the film is that by giving us this this really warm character, we begin to be able to see just the plight of the elderly in this community. And I think it translates across cultures. I don't think it's just Chile. I think it's here. I think it's so many other places. Um, I think this is uh, just such a moving film that, uh, again, plays with the noir tropes uh, in some really delightful ways. Uh, Again, I'd love to see how how filmmakers take uh, a genre and can uh use use the documentary form to stretch it and Mm -hmm. do different things so yeah that sounds
1: fascinating and that was on hulu right
0: that's on hulu yeah okay Uh, this one's great well well worth the time and um while it's a uh a more emotional film. I think this is one that definitely is, is on the lighter side. My okay. wife and I, we, we take a vacation for our, um, anniversary every year in December. And, uh, we ended up watching this and Dick Johnson is dead in the same day. Oh yeah. And it was a really great kind of double feature, uh, just yeah. about, about mortality. And, yeah. uh, Dick Johnson's, that's a great,
1: that's yeah. a great
0: movie. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: well, I'll have to definitely check this out. We just got Hulu. So, um, we're, building our, our watch list. So I will, I will add this to that. Yeah,
0: it's a good one. That's a good one. Well, those are a couple of really, uh, we've given a couple of recommendations there on the channel. We have the desperate hours and depresa depresa and on uh, HBO max, we have dead again and on Hulu, the mole agent. So Jill, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been fantastic.
1: Yeah, this has been a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. Uh where can people find you online?
1: So um at the uh, Classic Film Collective which is uh, a Patreon and then I am also on Twitter as Biscuit Kitten and um and then of course a co-host on Criterion Now which is part of the Criterion Cast network and DWT Drinking While Talking with my co-host, Wade Sheeler, which is kind of on a hiatus. And then, of course, our website that I run with Wade, um,
0: Retroset.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. This has been great.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. A lot of fun.
0: Yeah. You can find Criterion Channel Surfing at criterioncast.com and our website, cinemacocktail.com. And you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching for Criterion Channel Surfing. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join us in the Criterion Channel Club Facebook group or send us a message at CriterionChannelSurfing at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Josh Hornbeck. Our logo was designed by Doug McCambridge of the Good Times Great Movies podcast. You can see more of his design work at dpmdesigns.com. Criterion Channel Surfing is a proud member of CriterionCast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com and support the work of CriterionCast at patreon.com slash CriterionCast. Criterion Channel Surfing is listener-supported, so please consider donating to the show at patreon.com slash Hornbeck. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all regular and bonus episodes of the show, and for $10 a month, you'll have the chance to give my guest and I a film to discuss in a special Patreon-only bonus episode. I'd like to thank all of our Patreon supporters. Your support really does mean so much. Thank you. On the next episode of Criterion Channel Surfing, my guest and I will sit down to discuss family drama. I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. Criterion Cast, a podcast network and website for fans of quality theatrical and home video releases. Find out more at CriterionCast.com.